Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't think I have to tell most of you out there that the eyes of the political world are on Georgia more than any other state uh, that is conducting a primary election uh, today. Um, we'll see uh, whether or not uh, same day uh, primary day voting uh, matches the extraordinary uh, turnout that we had in early voting here. Um, we usually see, I think, around 900 plus thousand a million people voting on election day. And um, so we're going to see just how many people uh, vote and uh, whether they take Republican or Democratic ballots, because that's become a really interesting aspect, especially of the uh, early voting. Um, we've got a lot to talk about, so I want to get right to the panel. It's Tuesdays. My partner from the AJC is senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. Uh, Tamar, thanks for being with us. Hey, Bill. Can't wait to dive in. I, I, and, and maybe one of you along the way correct me about what we usually see on same-day voting in primaries. I may not have that number right, so if anybody wants to correct me as we move forward, please do. Uh, Amy Steigerwolf, that includes you, professor of political science at Georgia State University and the associate department head of the political science department. Thank you for being here, Amy. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a good day. Adrian Jones is uh, back with us as well. She's a professor of political science and the director of the pre-law program at Morehouse College. Hi, Adrian. Adrian, I think you're muted. Adrian, you're muted. Good morning. While oh, you're sorry. Get, there you <laughs> go. That's okay. That's okay. Uh, Thank you for being here today, Adrian. Oh, it's good to be here. I know you think it's Christmas. <laughs> and uh, Rick Dent is back with us as well. He's the vice president of Matrix Communications. We have really turned to Rick throughout this primary season, as I hope we'll be able to during the general, uh, because he tracks the advertising, uh, the content of the ads, as well as the amount spent like nobody else I know. Uh, no, he has a background in politics. I first got to know Rick when he was press secretary for Governor Zell Miller. Uh, back in uh, the 90s. And now, Rick, you're not quite as involved in partisan politics as you are watching other people struggle with their own campaigns. Absolutely. And when I got the invitation uh, for Election Day, it was like, how could I say no? I got to be with Bill Nygut on Election Day. (laughs) <laughs> well, we're very glad to have you here. Uh, let's start with the premier race on the ballot uh, tomorrow, of course, and that's the matchup between Brian Kemp and David Perdue in the Republican governor's race. Every poll that we've seen suggests that Brian Kemp is going to cruise to victory today. But as I mentioned on the show yesterday, uh, there have been times in the past when every prediction that we thought was almost certain has proven to be untrue. I cited yesterday my favorite example, which was in 2002, when no one expected to wake up the day after the election and find that Sonny Perdue had been elected governor over Roy Bard seeking a second term. So we want to be careful, but it does look like Kemp is in a pretty unassailable position tomorrow. 
Absolutely, Bill. I've learned in my time covering politics that uh, predictions can mean very little. I mean, look, as far as 2016 with uh, with Donald Trump, even as recently as 2021, when we saw uh, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff uh, eke out, you know, victories and, you know, hand Democrats Senate seats for the first time in a long time. But you're absolutely right, Bill. Polls have shown that, that Brian Kemp is, is you know, potentially going to cruise to victory without any sort of runoff, which is huge. I mean, let's think back to when David Perdue entered this race late last year. Um, you know, we thought it was going to be this battle royale and, and Brian Kemp was going to be really vulnerable. And he's proven, um, you know, just how skilled he is in terms of the what he's been able to do with the raw powers of his office, um, what he's been able to do kind of tactically to sideline one of David Perdue's uh, biggest allies, his first cousin, Sonny Perdue, when he appointed him chancellor. Um, and he's gotten a bunch of late help from a bunch of uh, current and former Republican governors, including Chris Christie. And yesterday, of course, he had a rally with former Vice President Mike Pence, um, a great bit of counter-programming as, as Donald Trump was doing a tele-rally for David Perdue. Um, so Governor Kemp looks to be in great position, but as you mentioned, um, very unpredictable. Brian Kemp was not considered the favorite at this time in 2018. We all thought Casey Cagle was going to be the Republican nominee for governor. So, of course, you know, he, uh, you know, we're, we're holding our breaths, but he's looking like he's in good position. Um, so, uh, well, let's talk a little bit about Pence uh, coming in uh, yesterday for last night. Um, this, you know, the the country is viewing this. Political uh, observers are viewing this as uh, Donald Trump and Mike Pence fighting a proxy war over the Georgia uh, governor's race. Um, it is, uh, but by the time Pence arrived here, Amy uh, Kemp was already positioned to win this thing. It doesn't hurt that he has the former vice president's. Uh, support. It strikes me in some ways that uh, the appearance of Pence last night was more important to Pence than to Kemp in terms of Pence positioning himself for the future. I think that's exactly right. I think Pence is making clear that he is planning on running for the 2024 presidential nomination. This is a way to sort of step out publicly from underneath uh, Trump's shadow and say, nope, I'm taking the party in a different way and we're going to move past what happened in 2020. And I think it does show to some degree also, right, because there, there's no way not to call, honestly, Pence, right, a Trump loyalist. He was his, uh, you know, running mate and all through this, that a number of people are sort of reaching that position. And I think, again, that's what we're seeing also in this race that in many ways Purdue seems to really be harmed by a singular focus on the 2020 election had problems, right? What he doesn't really have is an argument about what comes next, right? What do you actually want to do as governor other than keep saying that 2020 should be redone? And Kemp is able to, obviously, as Tamar pointed out, point to a lot of things that he has, in fact, done, as well as other policies that he wants to achieve. And that's working really well for them. And it sort of shows, again, also the advantage of incumbency to be able to point to that ongoing track record and that ongoing list of here's my accomplishments. Here's all the very conservative things that you all wanted done that I did for you. Uh, Rick, uh, just to quote a little bit from Mike Pence in his uh, rally speech last night. Um, because this also really set him apart 
from Donald Trump. He said, I will always believe there's more that unites us than divides us. Um, there are some people who want to make this election about the past. When you vote tomorrow, you will send a message that the Republican Party is the party of the future. Pretty stark contrast to Donald Trump. Oh, oh, absolutely. And and then if you, you just look at the last, you know, 18 months, the idea that Vice President Pence might wind up as one of the greatest heroes to defend American democracy is just in, incredible. It's just, <laughs> just incredible and mind-boggling. And absolutely, I, I think what the Purdue campaign has shown is, number one, you just can't win on one issue, especially when people are hurting and you have no answer for that. And you can't win if you don't have money. And that's been the two problems that uh, uh, Purdue has faced. He's a one-issue candidate with no money. Adrian? Yes. I, I mean, I think we have some of the same happening here with Kemp and um, Raffensperger, right? Um, in my view and opinion of the recent history, these folks are not um, anti-voter suppression. Um, and yet, in 2020, they come across as heroes. And um, compared to Purdue right now, Kim, look, Kim looks really good. I, mean, I don't know if you've watched any of the debates, but um, Purdue made Kemp look <laughs> downright moderate and <laughs> reasonable as a choice uh, for the state, in addition to his being the incumbent. You know, let, let's dig into uh, something that happened last night tomorrow with David Perdue. I mean, it, as, 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 as you've already pointed out, the panel's already pointed out, Perdue was a one-note candidate. The only thing he ran on was a stolen election in 2020. He had no positive agenda of any sort whatsoever. Um, and last night, I, I think... I want to be careful about characterizing it, but I think there are people who are going to say that he reached a new low in the way he comported himself. He appeared on a right-wing talk show. Uh, up in, he was up in Dunwoody with a, a talk show host who's been going around the country promoting the, the big lie uh, theory of Donald Trump's. And um, he made some comments related to Stacey Abrams, uh, it, it, we know that over the weekend, Stacey Abrams did commit a gaffe, and I want to talk about that in a little while. She, she said Georgia is the worst state to live in, and that was her blanket state of it. Then she went on to explain what she meant about that, and she cited a number of figures for showing Georgia in the bottom in a number of areas. Nevertheless, that gaffe is going to haunt her. Here's how David Perdue addressed it on this show, and then let's all talk about it. Did y'all see what Stacey said this weekend? Said that Georgia's the worst place in the country to live. Hey, she ain't from here. Let her go back where she came from. She doesn't like it here. The only thing she wants is to be president of the United States. She doesn't care about the people of Georgia. That's clear. You know, when we saw in 18 what she did and what she said, oh, we're going to have a blue wave, we're going to do it with documented and undocumented workers. You know, I don't think a lot of people in Georgia understood that when she told black farmers, you don't need to be on the farm. And you, she told black workers in hospitality and all this, you don't need to be. She is demeaning her own race when it comes to that. I am really over this. She should never be considered for material for a governor of any state, much less our state where she hates to live. Tamar, this racist trope is bad enough. But in, even in the way that, that Purdue gave that, that statement, he sounds like a guy who's flailing and a bit out of control, to be honest. Yeah, and maybe 
he thought that that's, you know, one last way to rally up enough people in his base to get them to go to the polls. You know, he's really focused so much of his fire on Brian Kemp, less so on Stacey Abrams. But you're right, um, really racist trope that we've seen over and over again in American politics. And I mean, kind of a sad closing note from a candidate, you know, for from somebody who's been in the public eye now for almost 10 years. And, and this is how it might end. Um, you know, as, as my colleagues noted in today's morning, Joel, you know, history might not be, be so kind to, to that. Adrian? I think we're going to see some more of these racist tropes emerging um, as Stacey is able to enter the field uh, into the live race. And let's just put a little context on what Stacey is saying, because she's saying, you know, the state is 48th in mental health. First in maternal mortality, first in HIV diagnosis, sixth in infant mortality, nine in gun violence, fifth, fifth in minimum wage. So these are examples of the kinds of reasons that she's saying the state is a problematic place to live. And ultimately, uh, part of her job is going to be to convey to the state what it is that she's going to do to improve those metrics so that Georgia continues to be. Um, a good place for people to live and where Stacey has lived since 1989. So let's, yes, I was just going to say, let's put it in context. Stacey Abrams came here in high school. She's been a Georgian ever since then. Uh, going back where she came from is a, a, a horrific thing uh, to, to say uh, for Purdue to have said, because she is for all practical purposes, a Georgian. But, but Rick, let's take this a step further. You've, you've worked on a bunch of campaigns, and everything that Adrian said is correct. It, it, Abrams put her remark in context, but you would have cringed if you'd been a campaign uh, worker for Stacey Abrams and heard that first line coming out of her mouth. It's an example of what happens when candidates are out there and they just say things off the top of their heads. Uh, yes, it just drives you crazy. The, the problem is I think we all understand the nuanced argument she was making, but it's 2022. Nuance don't work no more. <laughs> nobody, yeah. nobody cares about nuance. Um, the attack on her is going to be much more subtle, but it's going to be this trope, and that is look at her. She's not one of us. That's going to be the attack, and she just kind of drifted right into that lane. And it, it was a mistake on her part, unfortunately. And, and let's Amy, just hope that move, she learns from it. I apologize, Rick. Amy? Oh. I, I don't disagree. I think the other side of it is that in many ways, right, those who are members of the Democratic Party – are going to want to know what the nuance is in the context. And they're possibly also going to very much agree with that message of, look, we want the state to be a good place to live. Right now, it's not there, right? So let's focus on what we can do to get it there. Let's recognize, right, these issues that are facing people. And uh, to put it kind of bluntly, like, let's look at the issues that are really affecting people that look like Stacey Abrams, right, and may not be affecting others. On the flip side, I think Rick is completely right that there's no Republican voter who's going to hear that and not think, who are you to tell us that it's a problem, right? You're not one of us. You're from over there. That's not the way to be able to frame it. How dare you insult um, 
my state. And so I think it's very much going to be split on sort of a partisan level of how people take it. The perhaps bigger concern and the treacherous path is that I think Rick is exactly right. It is kind of already laid out to be that the way that this remark is going to now be weaponized is going to fall into these racist tropes. Um, in exactly the same way that uh, the jolt this morning phrased it that the New York Times did. And that's a real problem, because the reality is that the demographics of the state, even since 2018, have changed. And the overwhelming majority of, for example, new inhabitants of Georgia, new voters are people of color, are right in the suburbs and in the more urban areas. And so it's kind of unclear how well those types of attacks are going to play once we move out of the primary and into the general election. Tamar, before we get past David Perdue and move past talking about the governor's race, I I want to it occurred to me as we're talking, you've seen the evolution of David Perdue firsthand because you covered him when you were the Washington correspondent for the AJC. So before we get past him, I would love to hear your take and how you've seen him change. What was it like to cover him back when he was a young freshman senator, fresh out of the corporate world, saying he was an outsider? Tell me about how you've watched that evolution to what he's become today. Yeah, I mean, everything about David Perdue, when I covered him in D.C., he was very careful, actually. He was very kind of carefully scripted. Sometimes I found it hard to, like, kind of, as a journalist, I want to get these politicians to break past their talking points. And there's, a, you know, various strategies I'll try and use to disarm them. And he was always very much on message. It was a little frustrating as a reporter sometimes to get something a little bit off the cuff. But he would have these kind of uh, fiery moments on the Senate floor. But still, he used to always try and position himself, you know, yes, he was frustrated with the status quo in D.C. and kind of the clubby nature of the Senate. But he was also very careful in how he talked. And so it's interesting how he's kind of completely gone this other way, you know, gotten rid of a lot of the like very careful corporate speak that he used to kind of be much more of a purveyor of and kind of go more to the Trump conspiracy theory kind of part of the party. Um, And before he used to always have kind of, you know, he, he used to want to be this policy wonk and have all these different things he wanted to talk about. And now, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, it's all about kind of a negative message. You know, let's just criticize what Brian Kemp is is doing. It's much, it's much less of a, a kind of policy-focused candidacy. So it's interesting to, to kind of see that evolution. Well, and Rick, I think it speaks to how the, Donald Trump's impact on people who have become followers of his. Oh, yeah, a- absolutely. And the real test today is will those Trump followers come out in such a way as to save Purdue and maybe make a runoff? And we just don't know. You know, when you look at the Georgia vote total right now, an extraordinary number, 49% of the people who early voted did not vote in the primary four years ago. Who are they? What are they going to do? And we won't know until uh, later tonight. Yeah, which is why we're, we've got to be careful that while the polling yeah. shows Kemp with a huge lead, we've got to be cautious 
about how this develops. Also, before we get completely off this subject, Adrian, um, the, the proxy war between uh, Pence and Trump uh, got really heated on the Trump side uh, when the Pence team announced that he'd be here for Brian Kemp. Um, we have a, uh, a statement from the, the uh, Trump folks. They said this, Mike Pence was set to lose a governor's race in 2016 before he was plucked up and his political career was salvaged. Now desperate to chase his lost relevance, Pence is parachuting into races, hoping someone is paying attention. The reality is President Trump is already 82-3 and with his endorsements, and there's nothing stopping him from saving America in 2022 and beyond. I think it's safe to say, Adrian, that Trump and Pence are now in an official divorce. Um, they've been divorced, and I think Trump should recognize, you know, that he's the greatest parachuter. He's parachuting into all the races in order to uh, shore up his wherewithal for now and in the future, um, which I'm concerned about. I just one thing on this Stacey statement, which I'm willing to agree with you that perhaps the wording was poor, um, but I don't think that a candidate can always front load the fact that statements are going to be done problematically, right? This doesn't change what she's talking about in the state, particularly in the eyes or in the relationship between Kemp, who's doing a great job right now of um, shoring up his bona fides, explaining why he's benefiting the state, right, where Abrams is trying to come in um, and improve things, for example, in healthcare, where no one can honestly argue that this is the greatest state to live in for um, healthcare. Fair enough. I understand that position. So thank you for saying that. Uh, Amy, one last thing about this. I, I noticed um, that if Mike Pence is coming to Georgia uh, uh, to uh, set himself up for a 2024 run, perhaps with Donald Trump uh, as another candidate, uh, this morning's Wall Street Journal carried an essay from Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, who's a, considered a moderate governor and who's been very openly critical of Trump. He's never hesitated to speak out when he thinks Kemp, uh, Trump has uh, uh, gone off, uh, um, you know, uh, off the uh, uh, ranch and, and is making absurd statements. And uh, But Larry Hogan says, keep Georgia honest and principled. Governor Kemp is running against a pair of election deniers. And, uh, and he, he includes Stacey Abrams as one of those. We can talk about that another time. But here's what he says. Governor Kemp has faced ridiculous and dishonest attacks from former President Trump simply because he upheld the will of Georgians in the 2020 election. And there are those who think Larry Hogan may be positioning himself for a run for president in 2024, too. Yes, I think we sort of have all felt this and it's continuing that Georgia is the center of the national election attention. Uh, many of the issues that sort of we see playing out across the nation are happening here in Georgia. So we serve as a really great proxy is that we are most decidedly probably the most uh, public and obvious proxy for this debate over the 2020 election and to, to what degree it should still matter. This is where Trump has really gone all in. It is terribly personal. And he, of course, has made endorsements all the way down the ballot, right, to sort of show the degree to which he dislikes Trump and any or Kemp and anyone who's connected with Kemp. And so in 
it really does sort of start to play out as to what degree um, people are willing to listen to his arguments and say the only thing that matters is whether or not you were willing to aid Trump in the 2020 election, or are we moving past it? And what we're seeing is sort of the circling of the wagons, some might say, finally, uh, really against Trump and against this idea that we need to um, connect back to him and that we shouldn't move past the 2020 election. Rick, let me give you a final word before our break. Yeah, I want to make one quick point. This is what Trump does. We talked about Trump and Purdue, Trump and Purdue, Trump and Purdue. Let's also remember 16 months ago, I'm sure of it because I've been in that governor's mansion in trouble. Brian Kemp and his advisors and his pollsters sat there 16 months ago and said, the only way you can win is you've got to be perfect and you've got to catch a couple of breaks. That's the only way you're going to win. And that man has run a perfect campaign thus far, and he's caught some breaks, and he deserves all the credit for it. So, okay, Tamar, before we do go to a break, I think all of us would agree that Kemp has run a campaign uh, just the way Rick has described. But I want to be careful for our listeners, because I know how they hear things like that. We are not saying that we think Trump, Kemp should be reelected governor of Georgia. We're not saying that one way or the other. We're commenting very specifically on the fact that his team has done everything they needed to do to win this primary without a runoff. Is that a fair way to put it? I think so. And he's proven like masterful, even just the way that he talks about even Donald Trump. It can be wordy because it has to be right. He can't. He can't completely slam Donald Trump and his supporters because he needs those supporters in the primary and ultimately he needs them in November. So he's been extremely careful in how he's kind of carefully ignored Donald Trump. But he's also been very masterful in using the powers of his office to do things that the Trump base will really like and support. Of course, the abortion law, SB 202. Uh, expanding gun rights. He's done kind of everything policy-wise that Trump voters would want him to do. And I think having the power to let that speak for itself. And it certainly helps that he's running in a climate where, you know, Democrats are in power and inflation is skyrocketing and energy prices are soaring. He, He certainly has the wind at his back, the general atmospherics of what's going on right now. So uh, he has the wind at his back during this primary season. Once he is declared, as we expect he will be the winner of this primary, we will quickly shift, as journalists will across the state, into talking about the contest between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp and who has policies that are more in keeping with the voters of the state, who's doing things right in their campaigns, who isn't. Amy, you want to get a last word? And we got to get to a break, but go ahead. I was going to say, and I think that's going to be the real issue, is that when we switch over to the general election, the assessment is wildly different because it's one thing to play to primary voters. It's another to play to your general election electorate, bringing back in the moderates in the suburbs who perhaps didn't support you previously and aren't so sure that they like all these policies you've put in place. And so that's a delicate balance. Adrian, I got to get to a break, but go ahead. <laughs> a referendum on black leadership in the state, right, which the state has resisted historically. Um, You know, so we're not just talking about 2020. We're talking about 2008 and 
um, Obama's term and what we're seeing since then. Um, so, you know, we're living in Georgia where traditionally, uh, politically, part of the point has not to have black people um, run when statewide and certainly not be the governor of the state. Um, All right. We do have to get to our first break of the show. Uh, When we come back, a lot more to talk about on this Election Day edition of Political Rewind. Rick Dent, Adrian Jones, Amy Steigerwald, Tamar Hallerman uh, join me on this Election Day edition of Political Rewind. By the way, a quick note. Um, tomorrow we're going to do two live shows uh, with you. We'll be live at nine as we usually are, but rather than rerun the show at two, because we may still see returns coming in, we're going to do a fresh update and a live show at two. So um, if you can be with us for both of those shows, uh, we'd really love uh, to see you. Rick Dent, um, just a quick note here. You've been terrific at keeping track of spending in the governor's race, in in the U.S. Senate race, too. Um, which we'll talk about in a minute. Let's just put a cap on the governor's race spending. (laughs) You have numbers that show that so far Republicans have spent 19 plus million dollars on advertising Democrats, 16.7 million dollars. And that number is just, those numbers are going to just grow and grow. I mean, we're talking about a staggering amount of money that will be spent by November. And the numbers are so high, they don't mean anything anymore to voters. Yeah. You know, you used to be able to run a complete statewide campaign for governor, you know, for 8 or $10 million. I remember when Roy Barnes hit $20 million, people just, their, their heads exploded. Now we're talking about, well, you know, two years ago, the, the two U.S. Senate races, $700 million. It's incomprehensible. Um, but that's where we are. Now, the interesting thing about the, the governor's race is, for example, at the end of this week, Brian Kemp spent $1.1 million on ads just this week. David Perdue spent $1.2 for the entire campaign. Yeah. So that shows yeah. you the great disparity, disparity between those two in, in the governor's race. Warnock is spending like a drunken sailor because he has it. Yeah. Yeah, I want to talk. That's how we're going to transition tomorrow. Uh, Rick has these numbers for the for the Senate race. The Democrats between the campaigns and PACs, uh, they have the Democrats have spent sixty seven million dollars already for that U.S. Senate seat now held by Raphael Warnock. Republicans forty million dollars. Uh, maybe the only reason the Republican spending is lower is because. Um, uh, they know it's likely Herschel Walker will be their candidate and they can start dumping money. They don't have to worry about him winning a primary and putting him in a position to try to beat Warnock. Yeah, and of course this number will only balloon in the next, um, you know, in the next six months. And as Adrian mentioned, it is a referendum on black leadership. Raphael Warnock is our first black senator, um, considered the most vulnerable incumbent in the country. Um, of course, Herschel Walker, you know, a, a black man who's going to be challenging him. And so it's going to be very interesting to see how all of this is argued. And I think it's very interesting, the shift we've seen from Raphael Warnock in recent days, as he's sort of kind of subtly backed away a little bit 
from Democratic leadership in Washington and the Biden administration by saying, I'm not a magician. I alone can't solve every problem uh, that, that voters face. So cut me some slack, give me some time. I'm doing everything I can. But issues like inflation that are at the, the top of all of voters, um, you know, issues, I alone cannot solve. Um, and so that's going to see that's going to be something that Republicans will hit him on relentlessly in the months ahead. Um, Adrian, uh, I don't want to play a lot of campaign commercials on Election Day. It just feels wrong to do it. But there is one ad that I do want to play. And it's largely because we think that the contest between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker is pretty well set in stone. This is an NRSC, National Republican Senate Committee's campaign ad, which plays on the fact that, as you know, we all know, Adrian, Raphael Warnock in many ways had enormous success by showing a warm, uh, friendly, neighborly side to himself. Uh, the, we know the dog commercial, which was so effective for him. Um, and so the NRSC kind of understands that people like Raphael Warnock as a person. Let's listen to the audio of the spot, and then I'd love Adrian for you to weigh in. Raphael Warnock, his personal story, inspirational. His story as a senator is the problem. Warnock votes with Joe Biden 95% of the time. What does that mean? Warnock backs an energy tax that would push gas prices and utility bills even higher, and restrictions on U.S. production that would make us more dependent on foreign suppliers. Raphael Warnock, on the issues he's wrong for Georgia. NRSC is responsible for the content of this advertising. Adrian is a great guy, has an amazing backstory coming up from poverty to be where he is today. But boy, is he wrong on the issues. It sounds very patronizing and yet very sweet. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, I think it'll get rougher uh, as we enter into this race with Herschel Walker, especially because I'm having difficulty understanding, you know, what is Herschel Walker going to look like on the debate stage, even if. Warnock is more progressive or liberal than Georgia voters want. You know, is Walker going to be able to step up and be able to debate a Warnock, for example, who I think, like Kemp, in the last round um, showed real discipline in terms of his ability to present himself, um, to present himself as for Georgia. And he's also got, um, even if he's at risk or considered the most at risk in the country, you know, he is the incumbent. He does have a record now that he can tout. Um, And, you know, there's a sizable slice of Georgia voters who already like Warnock. So I think it's going to be pretty messy, especially where they've pitted him against a black man, you know, in a racial um, situation. But I don't think that's going to change the identification of the GOP and Herschel Walker um, and blackness with uh, Raphael Warnock. All right. So that that's the race that essentially we imagine starts tomorrow. I mean, let's go back. To, and I, but I wanted to mention it because I think that ad is worth worth putting up for people to hear. Uh, but, I mean, let's go back to uh, what's happening in the primary today. Um, we have some uh, interesting congressional races uh, on the ballot. Um, one of them, of course, is in the 7th District, where you've got two incumbents forced together, two Democratic incumbents forced together by Republican redistricting, Lucy McBath and Carolyn uh, Bordeaux. Now, Amy, I want to say we talked about this race yesterday, and I, I, I framed it as saying that 
Uh, Bordeaux's the more moderate candidate, Macbeth the more progressive. And I got pushback from the Bordeaux campaign saying, why don't you say she's progressive? I think they're kind of—I thought they were kind of proud of the fact she's a bit more moderate, and they feel that may have been one of the reasons she was able to win uh, the first time around. It's a difficult one. I mean, the reality is their voting records are incredibly similar. Um, There's you know, not a ton of difference between them other than maybe the sort of strategy over the Build Back Better and whether or not the infrastructure bill needed to come, but it's— one of those where the the difficulty always right after we have a decennial census and redistricting is you almost always end up with this situation where a well-liked incumbent is going to lose, period, end of story, because they are matched up against another well-liked incumbent. And so it's a loss for that party that they're, by definition, losing someone. And it's a difficult race to run in because I think both of them are really trying to kind of not attack the other, but at the same time say why they should be um, the better one. And it's I think a lot of people want it to be kind of a proxy fight for the uh, sort of fate of the Democratic Party. But these two candidates sort of aren't that. And that's, I think, some of the issue. Uh, by the way, tomorrow, this race could go to a runoff. Donna McLeod is the third Democrat running in that race, state legislator. And, and so we don't know enough to know whether or not uh, there may be a runoff between the top two finishers. Absolutely. Polling tends to be scant in many of these House races. And so it, it's really hard to tell, especially since that district, the 7th District, has been completely overhauled during the, the redistricting process. And I will say I agree with Amy in that their voting records are not dissimilar. It has a little more to do with the company that each of them keeps in Washington, who they've kind of aligned themselves with. Um, and, and as for whether Bordeaux is a centrist or not, I think it, it sort of made sense for her to frame herself as one in 2020 as she was seeking to, um, you know, flip a, a long Republican-held seat. She was able to do that. Now it's a much different district, much more progressive. And so now I understand why her folks no longer want to portray her as moderate. Um, so who knows, you know, Lucy McBath has been able to bring in some um, some big guns, uh, pun intended. Gun control is her big issue. Um, she's historically relied on a lot of support from her former employer, Bloomberg, you know, every town for gun safety. Um, you know, Gabrielle Giffords was recently here stumping for her. So it might be a tough seat for, for Carolyn Bordeaux to defend. And I'll be very interested to see how it shakes out at the end of the day. Uh, again, I, just, I should point out the Bordeaux folks, when we said yesterday that Lucy McBath seemed to have higher profile endorsements, they pushed back. They said, we've got them, uh, too. And certainly uh, one of the biggest ones is Andy Young, who is supporting uh, uh, Carolyn Bordeaux. Mary Margaret Oliver, a frequent panelist on the show, has said over and over again how much she likes the work that Carolyn Bordeaux has done in Washington. Rick, could we talk about the 10th with you briefly? That Republican contest is interesting, too. Donald Trump has endorsed Vernon Jones the Democrat-turned-Republican-Trump uh, uh, sycophant. Uh, but that race has got like eight candidates or whatever. You've got Vernon Jones. You've got Mike Collins, uh, whose dad was a member of the House, and Paul Brown, a former member of the House. That, too, is likely to head to a runoff. And there again, we'll be looking at Trump's influence. And I think what, what we may find on Election Day is that the true test of Donald Trump 
will actually be in down ballot races like this mm-hmm. and not yeah. at the top. And, and here's yes. why. Um, voters like to pick their U.S. senators and governors, and they get plenty of information that they can go through to make those choices. But as you go down ballot, there is no information at all getting to voters. So then they begin to look for endorsements. So it will be interesting to see if that holds true for Donald Trump, and that he actually does better the lower the ticket is than he does at the top. And, and Vernon uh, Jones would re- be somebody to watch. Uh, by the way, Mike Huckabee has now endorsed uh, Vernon uh, Jones, which is, I thought, uh, pretty interesting. Uh, Adrian, let me turn, if I can, to another race uh, that Rick has really led us into, and that's the Republican uh, race for Secretary of State, which is really going to be fascinating to watch. There you've got another Trump sycophant, Jody Heiss, who has been running on the big lie from the very start, running against Brad Raffensperger, the defender of our democracy against Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election. And right now that race, Brad Raffensperger, it's kind of neck and neck, but it's maybe surprising that Raffensperger is holding his own uh, that, too, could easily go to a runoff. I agree. Um, I'm surprised. I didn't know if Raffensperger was going to be charismatic enough um, to pull this out, <laughs> particularly against Jody Heiss. Um, and the stakes in the race, of course, are so high, right? We're talking about whether or not in 2024 we're going to have election um, oversight that's going to allow us to certify the election that is conducted by the people of Georgia, or whether or not some of these SB202 and um, just big lie um, urges um, leave state leaders making a decision about who Georgia sends um, to the presidency um, and to other offices that are on the ballot for 2024. Um, This is my most favorite of the races because it's a nail biter and I think it makes such a big difference to the people of the state. Um, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. We got a little more time to talk on the other side. And I want to do a round with all of you and ask you what you'll be particularly looking for as you watch returns come in uh, tonight. Uh, you're listening to Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Uh, Before I turn to ask each of you uh, on the panel what you're really going to be looking for most closely, Rick, I want to follow up on something that we talked about right before the show went on the air. I've always said that for political reporters, election days are like Christmas. You know, it's an exciting day for us. But you made an interesting comment about what it's like to be on the other side, to be someone who is managing a campaign, who's working hard to get a candidate across the finish line. And you see election days very differently. Um. For campaigns, election days are funerals. It's the death of a living, breathing entity that did not exist 16 months ago, 12 months ago. And a group of people come together, basically put together a multi-million dollar business, spend all the money, and then on election day, you know, your future is in the hands of the voters. And it's very bittersweet. So whether you win or not, it's the, it's the death of something that will never be replicated again. Even if you bring all those people back together and do it again, it's like a football game, a baseball game. It will never be the same. So it's, it's gone and it's dead. 
I remember back in the days of covering the uh, Clinton campaign for president and before that, the Zell Miller campaign for governor when Paul Begala and James Carville were running both, both of those campaigns. Begala and Carville always went to the movies in the afternoon of election day because it was all over. There was nothing they could do but wait for the voters to speak. All right, having said all that, Tamar Hallerman, what are you looking for tonight? What's going to be really capturing your attention tonight, do you imagine? I'm curious to see if Republican voters vote kind of up and down for the Trump slate of candidates or if there's going to be more of a mix and match approach. You know, maybe there's going to be somebody who really likes Donald Trump, you know, might pick like a Burt Jones, even a a Jody High, some of his other candidates, but maybe really likes Brian Kemp or Chris Carr. Uh, Is there going to be a mix and match or will it just be up and down the ticket? Uh, really interesting. Amy? Um, there's two things that I'm really interested in. Number one is uh, Mark Nisi has done a great job following this at the AJC, the percentage of Democratic crossover voters that we've seen in the Republican primary. And so I'm interested in how that will both affect the Republican primaries, right? A number of people noted that they were there to vote for Kemp, to vote for Raffensperger. But I'm also interested in how that might affect what are some competitive down-ballot Democratic races that could be harmed? Um, I know Jen Jordan, I think over the weekend, made a comment about how, uh, you know, she's concerned about her race for attorney general. Uh, B-Win is and editors are running for secretary of state, um, how that's going to affect there and what's going to happen in those. And I'm obviously, as we talked about, interested to see what's going to happen in the Bordeaux-McBath face-off. You know, Amy, uh, to to pick up on that just for a moment, um, we don't really have enough data yet to know how crossover voting and early voting, Democrats taking Republican ballots, are going to have, especially that that, um, Brad Raffensperger race, Mm -hmm. because we do know, at least anecdotally, there are a lot of Democrats who said they voted for Raffensperger instead of taking a Democratic ballot because they wanted to keep an election denier out of the Secretary of State's office. We'll be seeing data on that. It'll be fascinating uh, to watch that develop. Um, Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. So early voting looks to be about 7% crossover. So will we see similar things on election day or will election day, will will that sort of drop off and therefore it washes out? Adrian? I'm I'm excited about the same. Um, I think Amy did a really good job of explaining that. Um, And I hadn't really thought about down ticket Democratic races, which that's very interesting. You know, what's the crossover impact there? Um, again, I'm dedicated to the Secretary of State's race. Um, you know, my work is all about voting. And um, so, you know, I'm interested to see, you know, who's going to emerge as the GOP front runner and, you know, what that's going to look like compared to the Democratic field, because uh, in my mind, um, it's got to be sort of <laughs> left of Raffensperger or left of Raffensperger if we expect to have an election with a modicum of um, actually counting and certifying the votes that come through the election. And even um, even with Ratzensberger, I'm a little concerned because, uh, you know, I don't think his coming across as the hero in the last election necessarily means that that's a political position that he wants in this current field. So um, I'm concerned. Um, I think democracy is at a crossroads. And Georgia is going to be an example of what that's going to look like. 
Thank you for that. Rick? I'm going to overlay the Heist votes with the Purdue votes to try to isolate where the true Trump vote is. And both sides need to know that. Here's why. Number one, the Republicans need to isolate them and get them back out in November. And friends of Democrats need to know where they are to try to persuade them to stay home. Yes, I said that. <laughs> and, you know, I, I got we've got time for one more um, conversation that I really do think we ought to get to. Tamar, your colleague, Mark Nisi, whose name has already come up today, um, has been, you know, we had this issue about automatic voter registration with the Department of uh, Driving Services, where they changed their website so that you had to opt in for automatic registration rather than just opt out. And as a result of that, as Nisi has been great in reporting, uh, the registrations plunged. As a result of his reporting, the Department of Driving Services has fixed that. It's now an opt-out again. And that he says that the data from the department shows 72% of citizens submitted voter information in April, up from 27% in March. But those 27%, I mean, the people who didn't register are not registered, and there's going to be talk about that in the months ahead as the general election approaches. I mean, absolutely, especially as both parties buy for kind of new Georgians, Um, folks who might have been moving into the state, especially Democrats. They were able to really energize a lot of these newcomers in 2021, and especially when the margins deciding some of these elections may be so narrow. I mean, when we're talking about like the off-off Purdue race in 2021, um, even Biden-Trump, you know, less than 12,000 votes. Every vote counts. And so even when we're talking about a margin of tens of thousands, that can be the difference between a win and a loss. All right. Great way to finish the show today, uh, Tamar Hallerman, uh, because that's what I wanted to to mention to people. I I personally, for the first time in a long time, decided to wait until Election Day to vote because I really love seeing the workers who year after year turn out at my local polling place to, to put this election together. And I'm really eager after the show to get over and say hello to them and cast my vote. If you haven't voted, I hope you will. There's nothing more important uh, than the responsibility you have to participate in our democracy. So go vote. Tamar Hallerman, Rick Dent, Adrian Jones, Amy Steigerwald, thank you for a wonderful conversation on this election day. We'll be back with a brand new show tomorrow morning and another live show tomorrow afternoon. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care, stay healthy, go vote. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. 
It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. 